Hey there, everybody, and welcome to Game of Your Life, the podcast that celebrates all things nerdy, nostalgic, and most importantly, my favorite medium, video games. This week, we got Matthew Downey. Matt, glad to have you on the show. Welcome. Hey, Jordan, lovely to be here, talking about one of my most favorite things of all time. Yeah, this is a big episode, man, because, I mean, just as far as video games in general go, like, I think everyone knows, it's one of those, like, right up there with Super Mario, right up there with any recognizable figure like final fantasy 7 that cover is iconic it is it is it's truly iconic and stuff it's it's what brought me on the video games uh, and it's probably like a lot of people's it was their first forte in the jrpgs and most people's first forte in the jrpgs is usually like the definitive one uh so that's what's really drew, drew me in and uh yeah, I find it, it's almost like an HBO show where the first episode won't really grip me at first. I mean, I mean with JRPGs here. Yeah. And I, I was never gripped by them at first, but then once you get to a specific point, maybe it's that first battle or that first storyline shift where you're like, oh shit, I'm like invested now. Uh, I was going to ask, so, so this basically marks like, this was the first video game you'd played, or did you have any prior history oh, no, of games I, before this? I played games before. I was in the games, but I was never like obsessive about it. And um, I mean, even to this day, people ask me what's my like happiest time of my life, and I was getting a gold so- or uh, getting a gold chocobo in Final Fantasy VII. Like I, I remember that day, <laughs> like my, my mate uh, Big Will. So my my sort of gaming history was like I, I first started playing on the original NES. I mean, I had the Atari Twenty Six Hundred when my cousin had that. And playing like the original oh, the Superman and stuff like that there. And, you know, games were for me because, I, you know, I grew up in an estate where the police weren't allowed to come. So there's a lot of like dodgy stuff going around my estate. And so it was a good way for me as a kid to sort of like isolate and escapism. Um, and sort of like, you know, go into other worlds that just wasn't, wasn't as dark and shit out, as outside. Like, you know, so that's crazy. Where were, where were you raised? Uh, so I, I was born in like a, a state called Ballybean Estate. Um, it's the third biggest estate in Europe. Um, and okay. it's kind of like a little bit different, uh, you know, part of my set and stuff. It's like, it, it's just a, it's a complete difference to sort of like your, your childhood is just different in terms of like, as I said, like the police weren't allowed to come in my estate. So nothing was ever sorted out by the police. You know, if anyone's like their house got broken into, you'd ring someone up. And uh, someone would go and sort it out and stuff like that. There, it was a lot more community driven. That's wild, but it worked. I mean, it seemed like you said it seemed probably dark and dangerous at points. But was it functional? Well, yeah. I mean, it, uh, there's one thing like we don't like in in England here. We have council tax. Uh, in 1994, the whole of Northern Ireland, Belfast, we all ratted and basically said, "Fuck off. <laughs> we don't want we don't want council tax <laughs> or water rates." And um, they basically stormed Stormont, which is like our House of Parliament. And uh, we all, mm-hmm. basically, they all just stormed it and just went, fuck off, we're not doing it. And they never brought it in. So we don't have council tax or water rates in Northern Ireland. But, and so it, that just actually worked? They stormed it and it just worked? <laughs> what a nice story. Yeah, it's like when we're seeing something very, very similar right now where there has been rats in Belfast for the last week. Um, you know, buses are being burnt out and things like this here and, and, re- and reflection against Brexit and things like this here. I mean, it was a whole political thing where members of Sinn Féin I think it was turned up about um one of the funerals and none of them got arrested or anything and yet it's illegal to be a member of like the IRA I think like I'm, I'm paraphrasing here but basically a lot of people aren't happy that people weren't arrested for not coming to a funeral a couple of weeks ago so there's just been rats for the last week and that's crazy for me and stuff it's one of those where it's a difference about social unrest and you know getting to the point where people just say fuck off no i've had enough because 
<laughs> it, you know, in a lot of ways in society, it's, you know, we all, we're maybe the smallest ones. Like, you know, there's only like more people live in Manchester than there is in the whole of Northern Ireland. But yet we're very fucking vocal about the things like, do you know what I mean? It's, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, and from, from an outsider's perspective, it seems more justified. Like, uh, like when the, in the States, when they stormed the Capitol, it almost felt like a parody of what they think they're supposed to do yeah i mean it, but it's like sorry go ahead yeah so it, it's that sort of like i mean growing up with sort of paramilities all around you and stuff like that there it's quite uh to see the indoctrination there's a great uh there's a great little film called five minutes of heaven with liam neeson and james nesbitt and like neil uh, liam neeson basically he did a hit on james neeson's brother and he was talking about how like for him he was only doing what he thought was right you know, a lot of these people growing up and stuff, they only do, are only doing what their dads are telling me, what their uncles are telling me, what they think is the right thing. Of course. And that's the most dangerous thing because so many people in the world think they're doing the right thing when actually, in fact, they're fucking not. And it's <laughs> like an eye for an eye and the whole world's blind. So it, it, it's crazy. To, you know, you're, you're growing up with people where it's like, you know, like, I don't want to say on earth, but like, you know, fuck that catholic person over there and i'm like okay so you don't like him because he's catholic and like well do you believe in god and he's like no and i go but you're protestant he's like yeah and you're like do you not know that all protestantism is just a religion and if you're not religious there's no fucking difference like you know what i mean it's just one of those where you know the the mentality of of a lot of people and stuff like that there is just a bit crazy but no but it's all like you say it's it's what you're raising they only think they're doing right things that's the that's the the dangerous thing is is the fact that they think they're doing the right thing they don't think they're they don't know they're doing the Mm -hmm. wrong thing if you know well i mean no one I, i don't can't think of anyone that rose to power that like thinks they're the evil one like, even fucking Hitler was like, yeah. I'm making things right here. It's like, there's never a... It's always justifiable <laughs> in some twisted fashion. But that's crazy that that's going on. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it just reminds me of, like, the episode of... That little sketch in um, Mitchell and Webb, where it's just like... I think they're both dressed up as the SS guards, and they're just like, are we the bad guys? Are, 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 we, are we the bad guys? Do you know what I mean? And it, it's just <laughs> one of those where... Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of weird. For me, it's such a strange experience because growing up there, I feel it's, for me, it's one of the safest areas. Like me walking around my estate, I feel 10 times safer than I do walking around anywhere in England because I right. know what, what the crack is. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I know how to handle or what to do in situations, whereas there's just every mad person in Belfast is controlled because there's an even more madder person telling them, don't fucking do that, lad, or I'll break your fucking knees. I know exactly what you mean, man. Like, I'm from Vancouver, and it's got one of the worst slums, like, comparable to Skid Row in LA, like, terrible, terrible open drug abuse and poverty. And I lived there when I first moved to Vancouver, like, in the heart of it, because that's all I could afford. And, like, you get to know, like, I, I would know the crackhead that would be, like, on the sidewalk outside, wave to him every morning, like, You'd walk through that and it wouldn't even phase me. But like if I had friends visit from other areas that had never seen that before, it's like jarring and fucked up to see to them, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's weird because like go a counter against that. There isn't much crackheads in Belfast because there's a very strict control of who's allowed to sell certain things. Um, right. So for example, like a like lot of boozing, though, I would imagine if anyone gets uh, caught selling heroin, they get kicked out. So over here in like in england and stuff you've got more of an independent stuff where anyone any fucking tom dick or high could just pop up whereas over there you have to get authorization and stuff and you have to give so there's a lot more of control of like a lot more rules and regulations and for certain things like you sell to anyone under the age of 16 you'll get shot you get a breeze block dropped in your hand so there's 
there's rules for the the gangsters if you know what i mean as per se so it which is in sense mm-hmm. creates a more um what is it there, they say there's no honor honor among thieves whereas i think there is i think in a lot right. of other ways that that honor among friends or among friends among thieves is probably stronger because that's all that they have because they can't go <laughs> to the police they can't go oh sorry fucking jimmy diner he, he stole my load like do you know what i mean so you've got to which is even more stronger in some ways. So yeah, it, it's just an interesting look, and I I feel very blessed to, to sort of have that upbringing, uh, and to, to know that sort of way about it and stuff. Yeah, it, it's just it's strange to see like you know to understand like my country Northern Ireland is less than a hundred years old. Do you know what I mean? Like my right. nanny's older than my country pretty much. Do you know what I mean? So <laughs> yeah, that's very recent history. That's crazy, man. Oh no, nineteen twelve. Actually, shit, I can't do Mars. It's 109 years old, so I've realized just in case anyone else is uh, wanting to point out or cut that up. <laughs> but it's funny because, yeah, your upbringing probably shaped you into the guy you are now. I always sort of, like, not resented, but I always thought I was brought up too coddled and soft. And, like, then when I'd get in confrontations in my teens, I wouldn't know what to do and shit. And, I mean, the grass is always greener on the other side. It was sort of a nice upbringing, obviously, but... Yeah, I mean, it. it's just one of those where is it, but you're aware of it, and it's one of those where... it. If you're the first thing of anything, like addictions or anything like that, or any problem, as long as the first thing is identified, if you identify it, oh, actually, this is something that I, I struggle with, as long as you know it, then it's what I do, is, which is once you identify your weakness, then you go to then try and make it a strength because you focus on it mm-hmm. and you strengthen that area. So then it actually becomes a strength. That's why I always drink before I go on stage. <laughs> I just, I just thought you liked to drink, you know what I mean, man? I just thought you I thought you were just Irish at heart and you just, you know like to have a little drink <laughs> uh man before we go down that path i feel like we've talked a bit here and uh we got a lot to talk about with this game so i'm just gonna jump right to it and matt downey this is the game of your life Final Fantasy VII, released 1997, by JRPG by Square Enix, at the time Squaresoft. Obviously, the seventh installment in the series, it went on to be a mega hit, establishing PlayStation as a viable console and selling over 11 million copies in total. It went to spin, uh, inspire spin-off Dirge of Cerberus in 2006, an anime film Advent Children in 2005, and of course the most recent remake in 2020 that has a second part coming out. Matt, this was your choice, the game of your life, but I mean... It's a super popular one, but why did you choose it? Oh, it's, it was, it's, you know, with, when it comes to films, it, there's a close, you know, it, there's a close juggle, but when it comes to games, head and shoulders above any, anything else is Final Fantasy VII. And it is for many, many reasons, you know, whether or not it's the story, the graphical leap, um, never, I, I genuinely believe that they're never going to have such a technological leap between one game to the next. Now we're in games, we're looking for, oh, the next, like, what what looks good and things like this. And Yeah, no loading screens on the PS5 was the big accomplishment. It was like, that's the leap yeah. between, is less yeah, loading. Yeah, there's less loading, yet Final Fantasy VII, you, I don't really remember any loading. Do you know what I mean? It, it's like, that's, so that it's like, there's no loading. Um, the music, oh, the music is fantastic. You know, it literally to this day still gives me chills. You know, even the battle music or anything. You know what I mean? Yeah, I feel I feel you were sort of at the perfect age. Because for me, when this came out, I was seven years old. 
So I didn't have a PlayStation yet, and I think it would have been too adult for me at the time anyway. By the time I did get my hands on this game, it was like 2000, 2001, and it had already, it had almost been built up as this prolific, like, you know, anyone who talks about it at the time, it's the greatest game to ever happen. And it was almost like, it was tough standards to live up to. Yeah, it was, to be honest, it's seven, I would have thought it would have been beyond your grasp. I mean, I was 10 at the time. And I know that it took me probably a year of getting older because I know like the first couple of hours, I just completely fumbled through it. I didn't know how to do magic. And it was only until I hung up with like, older <laughs> people that they started showing me, do you know you can do this like thunder against robots and it does loads of damage? And I'm like, what? I've just been attacking. I love that when you play a game like two years later and you're like, oh, I was doing it completely wrong. <laughs> like, I didn't know what was happening. It was like, but there's mad things in it. Like, you know, when you come to like Cosmo Canyon, um, and you face against this like dead guy, so he's like a dead boss. He's like a zombie boss. Mm -hmm. That you know that if you put just a phoenix down on him, you kill him in one. I know. I forget who taught me that, but it was such a game changer because I remember the first time I faced him, I didn't know that, and it's a really tough boss if you don't just fucking mark him yeah, in one yeah. hit. So and it, but it's just I love the fact that that mechanics. It's like it's an idea that oh, use a phoenix down on someone who's dying or or dead to bring them back to life. So it's just love. I love that mechanic behind it. And doing, well, actually, what would happen if I, if I did it on a dead boss? Oh, what? <laughs> he, he just one-shotted him and it just went, you know, and just the fade away. It was just, it was just amazing. I just, I just love those sorts of the crossovers. Um, because you normally find that in games where they, you have all these abilities in gameplay and then it cuts to the cutscene or cuts to the actual cinematic and they don't use that oh that's a great point with games and it does frustrate me when I'm, it's literally like oh i can't get by by this ice wall and i'm yeah. like but you've been shooting fireballs every battle <laughs> yeah <do laughs> why can't I mean? you do that now it's just like but and that it's really game breaking and it really breaks out of your immersion um and that's why i thought final fantasy 7 was so fantastic because every every angle is sort of from a cinematic uh, angle so it's all um fixed cameras so because i'm a cinematographer and I really appreciate how every shot is um, cinematic because now we're in 3D games where you're just looking at someone's arse for like 60 hours, constantly just <laughs> the exact same shot of just looking at someone's arse, the back of someone's head. Mm -hmm. And after a while, for me, I think it's visual fatigue where for me, there's so many shots in Final Fantasy VII were just absolutely fantastic because it gives you the whole sense of the, of the area. And you're able to see, like, you know, you go into Sector 7 and you're like, oh, what's that over there? And what's that over there? And you can see... Every it's funny because... It, sorry, it's one of those things in games that, like, I might not have even noticed that until you brought it up, that you can't uh, adjust the camera like that, because I'm just so used to games from that era where, like, Super Mario 64, where you, your whole controller was the camera. And, like, it, it really is done well when I think about it. Yeah, and that's the thing, it's just... So the, the thing is that I talk, it's like um, understanding why people say the book is the best version, usually, of any medium. Um, you know, if, if you've read Lord of the Rings and you've watched Lord of the Rings, um, or you've even watched the, uh, what is it, the Soviet-Russian uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, most people will always say uh, that, that the book is always the best version. And for me, I think that's because the person creates exactly what they want. Like, for me, Barrett's voice in my head was, like, you know, really husky and, you know, uh, like a really husky black man's voice. And it, it was just the, the way... I'd oh, so is that is that 
I'm, I'm wondering the comparison you're making. Are you saying because there wasn't... Uh... Yeah, there wasn't voice voices and it was all text-based. So what I'm saying is mm-hmm. having these... Um, having it such a limited format in terms of having the text, even having such things as the text, all the voices in your head are exactly the way that you like them. Um, mm-hmm. So having actually... Uh, in some ways less control and actually getting less it's actually a lot better for people so with a with a fixed camera angles because it's all the camera angles are from a cinematic viewport they're all cinematic so every time you look at it you're going oh that looks good oh that looks good and it's never shit mm-hmm. and that for me it's like a thing where I, I i sort of when i do like a lot of design you're never as good as your worst piece okay so it's like i'd rather have three hours of absolute gold right but if you stretch it out to six hours mm-hmm. suddenly it's not as good anymore because it's like the boring bits and things like this but at the same time that's a good point but at the same time you got to understand you have to have boring bits to make the exciting bits exciting so it's all these it's all this balancing you're doing but to have like with a cinematic viewport the whole time you're never looking at that game going that looks a bit shit that looks a bit shit. You're always like, oh, this looks amazing. I don't know why it stands out in my head so much, but the one I always think about is right after Shinra's dropped the plate on a part of Midgar, and you Cloud is in that, like, playground. I think it's, like, right next to where the destruction was. The camera will come down and reveal the entire playground, like the tableau, and then you just appear in the back and come walk around in it, and it's beautifully shot. Yeah, it, it's so that that's like isometric. I think that's just outside sector seven, uh, in the little playground b- beside the marketplace, I believe. Mm-hmm. And sector seven had j- just been crushed, hadn't it? Funny enough, they, they do it in the uh, remake trailer. It's in the trailer, so I'm, I pretty much know that you've seen the trailer. So the, the playground, I think, is in the trailer as well. But yeah, that shot, the way it just pans down to see everything. And mm-hmm. you know the one I mean, it's beautiful. Yeah, and the, the way it is is because you can see everything. Everything isn't too far away, but at the same time, it's it's artistic, if you know what I mean. For me, it's um, it's like artistic beauty because mm-hmm. everything is far enough away for you to feel like I have to travel somewhere. But also, you don't have to go too far where you're not seeing something beautiful. It's like every shot is um, a drawn, like an artist drawn. And you're all everything that you walk around is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Whereas in 3D games, you have to have corridors. You have to have connecting bits where there's just dull connections but whenever yeah and it almost doesn't make sense physically you're like this building wouldn't work in, in real life it's yeah. just like yeah and that's a the hole th- in the wall yeah and that's the, that's what you're saying so it's when you find now when you're going more to the 3d games like um like say 13 and stuff you get because it's actual physical buildings you realize it just feels really flat because you're just on this floating platform with no supports and your brain even though you're not like constantly going oh well how is this floating your, your subconscious is sort of picking all these things it's sort of detract and sort of break you out of that immersion whereas just having mm-hmm. these little people on a nice little pre-rendered background it's just it's just perfectly artistic that gives you enough information to tell you the whole story but at the same time have epic enough shots for you to really grasp that area because you just need a flash shot for you to be able to start pin or like you know, picturing the rest of the scene. You know, when you come... Yeah, that's a great point. Um, so, yeah, it, it's just like... There's so many things that that at its time was just absolutely fantastic. And I and that's why I think they'll never be done again. Because they only took them decisions because of a technical limitation. But I actually think now, as an art- artist, that they were actually fantastic choices. 
and actually led to the sort of more uh, better gameplay and sort of more immersion because the person was able to create their dream. Right, and it's funny because I, I've seen that in games, like what you say, the limitations of the time actually created more artistic choices because of, like, you're right, if they had all the pieces they have today, they might not have made a game as special because they might have not done the things that, like, the limitations required of them, which actually made it special to begin with. I mean, you. I mean, pretty a perfect example is, is Mario. Um, you look at the Mario games and how they went to like, you know, once you got to like Mario 3, 64 and it went 3D and stuff like this. But how many games after that have actually retracted back and went to more like a 2D and 2.5D and actually restricted uh, an axis of movement? Because having in, in platforms, I actually think it's it's clunky to have full 360 of movement. Because how many times are you trying to jump on a platform rather than you want to just go left or right and jump but actually, in fact, you, you jump round the side of it because you you're, you slip your analog stick off. So by having more control, it actually makes for a, um, a less engaging, uh, a more frustration. Well, and they're different kinds too. Like, um, but here, before we get too deep into this stuff, I want to. I, I like I like breaking these games down just by sections. And the f the first one I always look at is uh, the story and the characters. Because uh, that's probably the most, uh, I guess, standout part about this game. Now, right off the top, I, I think the story is like, it's weird because in some ways it's very complex. And almost like it was tough to wrap my head around. But in other ways, it's pretty simple and straightforward. Like Cloud is going to kill Sephiroth. That's the line throughout the game. Well, yeah, but I mean, the actual, the main sort of uh, message around the game is the creator who, uh, unfortunately, I don't know his name, um... His mother died during development of the game, so he actually had a lot of a mourning, um, and he kind of wanted to incorporate it into the game. So he, but he didn't want to sort of do it Hollywood style. So he wanted to actually bring into games this the actual real sense of bereavement and loss, but actually the fact that things will still go on after this loss. So the whole creation around like the story of um, I hope I'm not really going to spoil the, the the story of it about one of the main characters, uh, Aerith. And it oh no, feel free. I we're just going to deep dive. Yeah. So feel free to say whatever you so want. So in Aerith is one of your main cast in uh, our Aerith. She actually when that it was always planned for her to die, you know. And it, that's the thing is for mm -hmm. for to have a, a story in a game where one of your main people, the people that you are that you control, just dies. Like, well, even past past that, they'd have uh, environments that have been wiped out. Like we were talking about Sector 7, which is where you sort of start the game, is no longer accessible after that happens in storyline. Like that that area is gone now. Awesome. That, that, see, the, again, that's, see, it's how that in, in creative and um, the, these writers bring in and sort of make you really sort of feel that sense because you, I love, like for me, Midgar was probably my one of my most favorite environments of the game i, I love, agree i absolutely love midgar totally agree so whenever you you, you got to the stage of you no know, the door shut behind you all that's been cut off that I, I didn't even think about it, but that's a really good point of how that reinforces that sense of loss mm -hmm, but they and they do the same thing with like you said Aerith is because i i can think of an example if you ever played chrono trigger uh they kill chrono off who's the main character but it doesn't have the same impact for a few reasons. One of them is you can bring him back in storyline in a side quest. But the second is that he, as a main protagonist in a JRPG, he never spoke. So it almost wasn't like losing a central character. The same way Aerith, like Aerith seemed to t tie your whole team together. She was this patronly figure. Uh, also, you're 
strongest, your best healer at your party at the time she dies, so that's devastating, just as a strategic, like, playing the game standpoint. Yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, it's just one of those that they absolutely gotten because, you know, at the time, I was actually trying to, like, literally gutting. She literally limit break. Sorry, go ahead. I, you just cut off her side? So I'm saying it was literally gutting. She literally got stabbed in the gut. <laughs> yeah, do you know what I mean? Like, it was just, and I mean... The thing is, as a kid, I'd seen it kind of in the trailer, like on, on TV, but yet it didn't compute till it actually happened. Where I was just like, "What? Like, mm-hmm. we'll just use a phoenix down on it. We'll just use a phoenix down. Come on, use a phoenix down. What? All that." And then it's just <laughs> all the hours of grinding. Just you're just sort of sitting there, just going, "Man." Yeah, and it really establishes, like, as as well as not only establishing the finality of removing her from your party. But it also sets Sephiroth apart as this truly evil protagonist or antagonist who's like, oh, he'll murk your characters. Like, he will kill, actually kill your party members and remove them from the game. That's like a whole other level of bad guy to me in a video game. Yeah, I mean, it's, and, and I think that, again, like, when you think about, like, for films, most of the top films and stuff like that, it's all, like, it, they, they need a good villain as well. If You, you know, for storyline, it's okay having a good protagonist. But if you don't have a good arch enemy where people want to see poisoned, or you know, if you want the real East, like no, he's done something where I want to get this bastard, and you know, this whole thing. Yeah, it's crazy. This game, it, it I'd say like Cloud and Sephiroth as the antagonist and protagonist are like, so they're both so strong in their roles that I think that's the whole like inspiration behind Advent Children was like. We just want to see an hour and a half battle between those two cool ass characters, both in how they look, their both of their respective weapons, like the Buster Sword compared to Sephiroth's gigantic blade, are both so cool. Like, and they both look so unique but badass. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I for Advent Children, I was kind of disappointed at the, the sort of redesign of Cloud. He's a little bit more emo day, and uh, you know, I, I, I kind of <laughs> didn't like. Um, the the redesign i've kind of come around to it a little bit more but like you know the original little blocky polygon man you know he, he's the real og for me like you know what i mean yeah if you were gonna get if you were gonna get a tattoo of cloud it would be the little block man for sure right yeah man for sure gotta be like you know the little buster sword and everything it's just you know <laughs> yeah some other great characters in this uh, i thought barrett and tifa are just great as like aggressive like self-righteous strong characters self-righteous in a good way like they're they're literally the only thing that stands between this giant mega corporation like destroying the world and both of them like i mean the attachment with tifa and cloud from childhood and just barrett sort of like you said this gruff black guy with a machine gun arm is it's crazy it's a crazy great character yeah, I mean, that's the thing is, is you've got all these dynamics and it's, a, you know, it's diverse. And the, the thing for me is like, you know, I, I was brought up like with Tifa and stuff. I really love the fact that she was a strong female character. Like, okay, you've got Aerith, which, you know, sort of is the other side. But like, and it's, even though Aerith, Aerith, she's quite strong herself, but in, in a different way. But I like the Yeah, way sorry that- to interrupt. I, I mean, like Aerith is sort of still introduced as your stereotypical, like she hires Cloud as her bodyguard. She's a flower girl. She looks timid, whereas Tifa is like a fucking kickboxer. <laughs> yeah, and I like that sort of the, the mix between the sort of traditional, a more modern, and um, you know, she's such a strong character, and you know, it's one of those where she doesn't. I, I always looked at Tifa as like she doesn't always say a lot, but when she does, she makes sense, and you know, it's always she always just comes in with a little line, and you're, I was always like, you know what, yeah, I'll, I'll pay attention to that, or 
you know, to do that and stuff like that there. And she's always just, you know, happy. I love she she never needed she didn't need it to be led by Barrett either. Like when you find Aerith and come back to Midgar and you find out that Tifa's just sort of gone on her own rogue mission to infiltrate Don Corleone Cor, Corneo? Don Corneo's uh <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, the honeybee in, you know what I mean? Oh what what a Dude, I love that as a like what a perfect way to sort of add because, I mean, it was sort of like a side plot, but it adds to the main plot and just adds so much character and intrigue to the story when you're in this shithole. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if anyone's never been to the Honeybee Inn, it's just uh, basically you've got to go and find items and get your main character dressed up as a woman. Now, this is 1998. This is over 20 years ago. And I'm playing a game where I have to, like, look my best. And the thing is, there's actually a whole, like, <laughs> sub um, stats and stuff, like, to get your, like, right dress and stuff. So you got to actually learn a bit of fashion sense, do you know what I mean? <laughs> so Yeah, I forgot about that. Cloud has to be, like, the most attractive hooker in the brothels to get <laughs> yeah. Don, Cor- Don Corneo's eye. <laughs> yeah, and it was just so weird. And it's just, like, you're just sitting there with your mate just trying to play this. Like, what's going on here? Are we going to get fucked by Don Corleone here? Like, what's going on? <laughs> Yeah, but it's nice because I realized in the game when I was looking at the story like there's so many good villains in this game and there are also like levels to them like Don Corneo is a very basic like local boss but then you move up and you see the Rufus the new leader of Shinra is has way more reach and way more power than a Don Corneo but even he isn't the biggest bad guy compared to Sephiroth who's on a whole other level of like power. See, so, so it's really layered. Like it's nice way what you touched on about the levels there. You know, is because you've got that uh, same like with Midgar. You know, you've got like the top level, and then you've got the the people below, and that that reinforcement, um, through the story of how that class system or them levels you have, where you you know you start off with, okay, you're in Midgar, you're you're doing the local gangs, everything's local, and then before you know it's, I mean that moment where you just get let out into the world map, like wow, it's like, huge. Yeah, and I also love you escape on the motorcycle down the highway. Oh, yeah. And right before that, I, I think that's such a great, like, little mini game they had in there. I just wanted to pick your brain on a few characters, um, and then we'll just get right into that. But are, are you a fan of Vincent or Yuffie? When you're playing through, do you get them every time, or do you ever leave them? I remember Yuffie's side quest to get her on your team is sort of annoying and uh, strenuous. Uh, when I will it's kind of weird the way i played it um so me and my mate played it we played like 10 hours through then we restarted play 20 hours through restarted and we we constantly like got done more and more so by there like when we actually like did it yeah we we had definitely we had both characters we had pretty much all their their ultimate weapons and things like this here so uh, i i really like vincent um i just thought he was a cool character he's just sort of broody and stuff like that there so vincent was generally in my final party so i, I would always kind of take vincent around me um Yuffie was kind of annoying. Um, it was really annoying. Yeah, just getting and, um, her is annoying. And I actually had a, a thing about Yuffie um, when I was a kid because one of my like hypotheses was that her and Eris had some sort of relation. And I think it was actually cut because um, Eris talks about her dad going off to the West and never returning. So when you first go into the house um, and you talk to it, it talks about Eris's dad going um, and he fucks off to the west and is never seen again he's just and he, he gets recruited by <laughs> like the the army like and then whenever you go to like meet yuffie and like and you go to meet her dad you, you find out that he came from the east and you don't find anything more about why he came from the east so i was always like oh so he's come from the east and this story's about her going to the or his dad going to the west and never seen again 
But then... Oh, like, shit, that's interesting. But then I find out, then you obviously you find out that Iris's dad is Hoju, and she's like... Um, and then her and er, er, Sephiroth. The thing Aerith's is... Aerith's dad is Hoju? I, I knew Sephiroth's was. I didn't realize Aerith's was, too. So, um, Hoju... I, I mean, this is... There's so many plot lines that because of they what they wanted to do and then whenever the game came out they changed a lot of things like Eris and Sephiroth were meant to be lovers they're meant to be brothers and sisters and you can see hints at that throughout the story that by the time that the story got to where it is now that they didn't take out as many elements as they should um it happens in some of the translations especially the English uh, the Spanish version is abysmal uh, for the translation so for the the stories and stuff so it's reading between like you know trying to like you're trying to base stuff on just like a, a line or stuff like this here but like i mean one of the biggest ones that was only sort of found out two years ago was to find out that um final fantasy 7 and final fantasy 10 are linked um final fantasy 10 is actually a prequel to final fantasy 7 so there's people in final Fan- and it was only the producer from like two years ago basically uh, confirmed the the story that high shinru was made by sending stuff from final fantasy 10 so oh that's very fascinating i, I love links like that man yeah I, I, I had to say you brought up hojo i think he's like the creepiest character in this game because he's got sort of like a dr mangala vibe to him and he's his timeline is set throughout this game like pre the whole game starting he was doing fucked up experiments on his wife because vincent tells you a story that the woman he loved actually fell in love with Hojo. Hojo knocks her up and then essentially gets bored because he's a psychopath and starts doing experiments on her. And that's how she dies giving birth to Sephiroth. So he was there since the very beginning. He's there when you uh, release Red 13. And he's there at the end when trying to destroy Midgar. He's like the second to last boss. Yeah, it's a, do you know that he, that's where you get Bard's ultimate weapon? If you're... Um... If you're not, if Bar, if Bart's not in your party when you're going to fight Hoju, you don't get Bart's ultimate weapon. Go when you go to fight Hoju. Oh, I didn't know that. That's how you get Bart's ultimate weapon. So, it's and that's the thing is, it's it's just small things like that there that, you know, there's so much depth to it. It's- Let's jump into the gameplay because one of the notes I have here under the gameplay is uh, that it's a linear story for the most part, but there's lots of side stuff to do. But would you agree that it is completely linear, or can choices that you make in this game change the outcomes of the game or change? sequences that you see and to, to what degree i i would i would say it, it's it is linear in the sense of it being like a film in terms of um you know it has a start middle and end yeah you can go and do certain things like side stuff but the, the main story is very linear the the story is linear and you've got the side stuff you, and the way i kind of see it you've got this main say 40 hour mission or uh, storyline to do and you've got about maybe another 10 20 hours of side stuff that you can go off and do but that side stuff you can do whenever you want so it's you can just pick it up and, and play it whenever you want you know you might not do any side stuff till the very end before you go into north creator and then go and do it all there i remember being very frustrated learning that i'd missed vincent in my first run through like i just didn't know he was there and totally it went over my head and i think by the time i found out it was too late so it's just like fuck <laughs> like god i missed that yeah, it's one of those that just certain things, like certain choices um, that if you miss, that and you're like, oh, I, I never got that. And, you know, it's like, you know, the thing is with Yuffie, I mean, I, I can't tell you the amount of hours that, you know, it took me of going to Yuffie and something happened, she steal all my shit and be like, oh, fuck. And then like oh. reloading it and, and trying to get the right answers and stuff like this here to see what was the other outcome. 
because mm-hmm. something you can just quickly Google now going, what would be this happen? You know, you're like, I have no idea. You're just sitting there as a kid, just loading it back up and trying to run round, you know, and yeah, it was just, so yeah, I mean, I was lucky enough to, to know about Vincent and Yuffie and there was nothing really that in my playthroughs that I found out that I was like, oh fuck, like, because I rinsed that game. Like, I rinsed it. And-, and I know, so we know the side characters well, but can you tell us a bit about the side bosses? Because uh, this game, I'll tell you, I beat once years ago. I always managed to beat through, and I know there's all this content I'm missing from it. Like, are there four weapon battles, or how many in total? There is only two. There's only um, Ruby and Emerald weapon. Um, and unfortunately, that's only for the international version. Um, on the actual original release, they weren't in it. So they were only added after oh, wow. afterwards as an additional sort of challenge, but then they got brought into the international version, which for for us in Europe, that's what we got our over in Canada and land. Um, so it, it's one of those where it's just like there's you've got. I actually find so Emerald's the one you, you fight under the sea. Now Emerald weapon, you've got an hour to beat it if you don't go and get another item that actually lets you breathe underwater um <laughs> you just drown <laughs> yeah you just drown you're just sitting there trying to do it and i've seen some crazy fuckers doing it without it and all and there's loads of strats now of now that people have like um so they've they've sat and worked out the complete meta for it of how you know like the speed runners i know it's just fucking crazy how some of them beat emerald weapon and stuff they use like the lucky seven seven thing where they they make sure that their damage you're doing is seven 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 and then it like goes crazy and stuff like this here so there's a lot of little tricks for it but i did it the old-fashioned way i got the item and i remember sitting down i I remember it clearly it was a saturday afternoon we started doing it about one o'clock and um me and my mate big will we we sat down in his living room and he was just hyperventilating the whole time. <laughs> and I'm trying to do it. I'm like, fuck's sake, well, chill the fuck out, man. I'm trying to do this. I'm trying to focus here. And just how this... Ho- he's a big guy, I'm guessing, with a name like that. Yeah, do you know what I mean? You know, big well, he's like a bodybuilder now, like, you know what I mean? But back then, like, it was just like, <laughs> just seeing him, like, it's such a, a big, big guy. guy, like, <gasps> freaking out, like, you know what I mean? And that, that yeah. that's like, again, like, it's kind of weird because that's how we became best friends is playing Final Fantasy VII. We, we didn't know each other, so we actually went to um, a, a, what's called like the Boys Brigade. So it's like part of like church and stuff. Um, so we don't really have church. When I'm asked yet, we don't have the church. We have mission halls because they're like pretty fucking serious about uh, doing religion in my estate. So uh, we, 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 I kind of went, went to the, for the football. But when you were there, I met Big Will and he was playing it as well. And we, it was over a couple of weeks, we basically got to the stage where we got stuck at the soul guy. And then when it was only whenever he, we did that for like another month, when he was coming down to, uh, into my estate or into my cul-de-sac near my estate, I got speaking to him and he's like, I've fucking done it. I've done it. And that's how we basically became best mates over that. Like. That's great. I love that uh, bonding over shit like that. I've made a lot of friends that way too. Uh, this game had lots of stuff, like we were saying, with the motorcycle battle, and out of all the side stuff that you're doing in this game, and not just the mini games, not just the skiing or the motorcycling, but even, like, when Sector 7's first destroyed and Cloud has to climb up the, the plate, uh, to get to the Shinra building, and it's, like, three or four screens of just, like, what, like, trying to climb and finding items on the way and shit like that. I love that, that gameplay. Yeah, it, it's the it's the variety. Like having variety, it's um the different variety in game. It just changes it up. It just 
whenever like we go back to the early thing of expectations if you ah i know what's coming up now and all of a sudden you're getting this new thing and you're like oh fuck what's this wee thing oh sweet oh well i'm gonna get some items as a climb up here oh awesome what's this and it's just just completely change the gameplay change of pace and and it just really refreshes it you know it's um when you go back to games like uh, need for speed underground did you ever play Mm -hmm. that need for speed underground no, I wasn't a huge racing game guy, so I missed it. Well, I, no, I I wasn't either, but that that was the thing. Why, like for me, Need for Speed was so good because you had the variety in the sense of you. One was a, like just a normal race, one was like a drift, and the other one was the drag race. So it was really good in having the variety, um, you know, and and changing up. And for someone who doesn't, I get really bored of driving games. You know, I have to have a Mario Kart, I have to have weapons, I have to have something else, and just doing exactly exact same, like, exact same here. So for 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 me. <laughs> And then that, that's what sort of got me to understand like how variety in games are good. It doesn't have to be the best gameplay. It just has to change it up now and again, just just to keep you guessing so that you're you, you don't know what's going to be around the next corner. Yeah, to be clear, like the snowboarding isn't the best part of this game by any stretch, but the fact that it is there, it's one of those little things that just adds to the experience. Like we were talking with the Don Corneo stage, just having a stage that outlandish adds to the experience, or having to find a dress like. It's not just your turn-based game, which I think a lot of people who hate JRPGs or never got into them, that's sort of their go-to critique, is that it's just waiting to take your turn, boring turn-based. And this game isn't even that. It's got an active time battle where you're actually like, if you don't respond quick enough, your guys will just die. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing is it's, you know, when you, when you sort of people think down and they go, oh, the, the turn base is kind of, ah, I don't really like, well, no, it's it's completely real time. If you if you just sit there with a finger up your ass, so, someone's going to come and wipe <laughs> you out. You know, it's, uh, um, but it's mm-hmm. all like the strategy and, and, and around of your choices you make in, in the actual battles. But I, I think the battles are, are a very, I'd say it's probably like 30% of the game. You know, you're, when you play in the game, it, it's less than half of the time you're, you're actually playing what you're doing. Uh, for me, the exploration, this little, like, world that you're in and just watching and you're just like, I was just enamored by the whole thing of just all these little people and just how everything is interacting. And it's just one of those where by having, you know, these things were... Okay, they're not the best of of any stretch imagination, but it does it to a degree that it keeps your attention, and it's like, so it's like, oh, I'll, I'll go and upgrade my armor. Okay, I'll go and do a bit of leveling. Okay, I'll do a bit of story. Or, or I'll go back, and then it's just having these like sort of circles because that's all we do. We're just on a, like a a routine in our lives. So, <laughs> once we get to a stage of having enough routine in the game. You're just there indefinite, you know what I mean? Because you just, as soon as you're bored with the last activity, you go back to the start one and you're like, all oh, right, sweet, I'll go and do that. And that's why the, the variety is so important because it just, it keeps all, oh, I'll go and play snowboarding. Oh, I'll go gold saucer. Oh, I'll go and level up this material. Oh, I'll go and see about like finding this thing over here. What was that about? Oh, I'll go to the ancient city. Oh, I'll go to the North America. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's just so much that you can do. Oh, I'll go catch chocobos. I'll go and breed my fucking chocobos and take the gold saucers and, and ride them. Not in the way that I'm probably thinking, you know, but. <laughs> you know, one thing I love how this game did is, uh, like, and most Final Fantasies will do this, but. They'll sort of limit the areas you can go to just based on your mode of tra- tra- transportation. So at the beginning, when you're just walking out of away from Midgard, you can really only walk to the locations on the map that you can access. Whereas later, you'll get a boat, which gives you way more freedom, but still not as much freedom as when you get your airship. 
and each each new level of like t- transportation that you get totally changes your access and the shit you can do yeah and then you've got and then the level above that's so your like your gold chocobo so um because the airship can't go everywhere so it's just like and that's the thing is every time you get these new modes of transport it's just like like oh and it's it's a, it's called the lock and key design so in games what they do is they show you like this prize okay like the lock right in terms of so you might find it like you're going along in the, in Final Fantasy and there was a cave that you couldn't get to that was just across this little bit of water but you knew that when you go to Gold Chocobo, you could get across to this island to see what was on this island. And on that island was was Knights of the Round. Um, and obviously, mm-hmm. this is... Oh, okay. You know, that, that's why... Yeah, was... so real quick, uh, one thing. I never got into the Chocobo hunting and shit. So explain how that works. Is it actually fun or is it more just like grinding? Uh, and what do you have to do to get well, the gold for... Chocobo? Well, going back, I mean, as I said, when I... I'm trying to remember, but I just know that when whenever we got that gold chocobo, it was the happiest time of my life, right? So that either I I, I either know that that was means that it was such a fucking grind to get it, um, because I really I don't think it was that fun to grind to get the chocobo. I think it must have been a bit of a grind to get them. Yeah, I think it was just very frustrating. But the act, the ultimate goal to get that knight's chocolate or uh, knights of the round, was, was fantastic. So you knew that. The, the the grind was worth it so in the sense of it was i but yeah it was full not it was nonsense because you had to go and you had to go and basically there was um wonderful and amazing chocobos that were all over the world that you'd sort of go and find out these so you had to find out because these were pre-internet times so i couldn't just look up the internet where was these chocobos so you had to like buy magazines or like find them from back of other like books and stuff like this of you know, yeah, I remember there were there were like tracks on the world map in areas, weren't there? You yeah, could see so the chocobo tracks. So you had little cho- um like chocobo marks, but how did you know? So you could go on there, and because there's a percentage, that might be the place where wonderful chocobos spawn. But you could go there, and it's just a normal one, and you're like, all oh, right, it's a normal, one, and you move on. You know, so you had to go to each area to sort of grind that for a while to sort of do your own research to go like, okay, I got this. Da, 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 da. That's where you get uh, these types of chocobo. But then it's like. So say, for example, it's a 10% chance of a wonderful Chocobo turning up. But then you've got a 50% chance that's a male or a female. So now you're looking at like 5% chance uh, of trying to find these Chocobos. And it's just, yeah, without getting into too much of the meta, it, it was just very, very repetitive. And it's just a fucking long grind. It was a very long grind. And is that the only benefit you get is the Knights of the Seven? Because I know that's uh, Cloud's final limit break, right? Yeah, it's everyone's limit break at Knights of the Round Table, but it, yeah, it was just one of those where it's, yeah, it, it's it's a difference between it's just the next tier because you, you the, the 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 way you use like mimic and four times and stuff around it, so you they could then they cast it like four times and then like you, you cast it again for four times, so you could basically really break the game. So, yeah, it, it, for me to do things like Emerald and Ruby Weapon, they were needed. It was definitely needed for them bosses. Right, that makes sense. And I, I like um I like just the limit break stuff and the limit gauge as a as a thing anyways. It even though I don't think the battle system is like a tired old thing, I, I do think it adds to it. Uh especially as a strategy. I remember a few times because your limit break your gauge fills up the more damage you take. So there'd even be a couple times where if I was so close I'd smack my own character just to get him over the hump and then he could hit his big move. Yeah, see, that's the thing, and, and but th- that's what I find was the it's the ingenuity of them choices that you made that sort of 
set it apart and i and for whenever games it's like i want to make meaningful choices in games so and there there you've made a meaningful choice you've went you know what i need to get his limit break up give him a little nudge there jimmy fucking smash him in the face clyde and next thing clyde bats barred over the face and now he's got his limit break and now you can bring that into the next fight and that's the thing is sometimes that is the difference between winning and losing you know them choices and that's what I think that that's where it's its strengths, if you know what I mean. For sure. And I mean, this game has no shortage of great nail-biting boss battles, like where one wrong move, if you're not quick enough, like you said, it's the difference between winning and losing. You know, so tell me this. So what was your favorite part of the game? Uh, Honestly, I, I do lean towards that first third. Uh, it's also because the, and by that I mean um, discovering you're in Avalanche, uh, then getting the information from Don Corneo, then actually climbing up and infiltrating the Shinra Tower. Specifically, the Shinra Tower where you save Red, Red 13, and then Sephiroth sort of reveals himself as having killed the the president. Oh, I think all that is, like, brilliant, like, top-tier shit. Yeah, it's really good. I, yeah, I just, I love the set, and I just love the Shinra building. I just love the whole, the Mercury, the, the Turks coming out, the little music and all. It was just like, yeah. That's, I mean, I, I love the music. I thought the music was fantastic. It was always... Yeah, let's get into that, because that's the third section I like. We just covered story, character, gameplay, and let's go to graphics and sound. Uh, we did cover a lot of the graphics and what makes them so special, but I think this music... I mean, every Final Fantasy battle theme is memorable, but this pro one's probably the most memorable. It's the one that people think about the most, stands out the most. Yeah, it's just, you know, that, that battle music, that... You know, it, it's just it's just iconic. You know, and even to this day, it gives me, you know, goosebumps in the back of my neck, my hair stand up. It's just, fuck, man, yeah. I, I also think, I, I don't remember games doing cutscenes that often before this um no this is this is one of the first games i had a fmv full motion video um and i actually think i had 105 minutes of like of just pre-rendered um cgi and you know at its time before like when did toy do you know when toy steer came out i want to say 96 or it might even be 94 like it was pretty early one sec so you know you were because you were finding like you know this is pretty much giving you a toy 96 sorry when was it because it was like toy story on march 90 march 96 yeah so it's like you know just around that time they're giving you a free toy story just on top you know and i <laughs> mean do you know at the time for adults though i mean it's not meant for kids this is a pretty dark story it's like we said it's pretty complex at points i even think it becomes a bit convoluted like when tifa and cloud fall into the mako and like become you, jo you join their combined reality I, I don't even know if I'd say convoluted. I just don't think they pulled it off as well as it, like, it's a very tough thing to convey on this medium. Yeah, I think they, they did go off a little, a little bit off tangent a few times and things like this here. And, you know, it got a little bit too much about the ancients and, you know, and that sort of thing. But yeah, it was big, big swings. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, it's, I, I, I don't think the story, as much as it, you know, going back to the story, the story as much as it, it was good for what it did, I don't think that it, yeah, I think you're right. The convoit, towards the end, there were some really convoluted issues. Mm -hmm. But I mean, this, like I said, the story itself of just Cloud versus Sephiroth is always there, and the characters do more than enough to make up for it. Um, I, I What I liked about this soundtrack of this game is a lot of the songs aren't ones you'd go back and listen to, but they're just mood-setting mu music, like 
in Shinra Tower, there's this dark, ominous fucking tune undertaking the whole thing. And it's not meant to be the main focus of the scene. It's just, like, tone-setting music. I, I like that this game does that a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's... I mean, I, funny enough, I've, I've got the album. And I, I'll, I'll generally will play it for just nostalgia reasons and that again. And every single one of them, it's just brilliant. Like, it's just such an uh, emotional soundtrack that re- you really feel that, you know, like the, you know, and you're just like, yeah, battle music. And you're just like, right, yeah, I'm in the battle. I'm in, I'm in it. Or, you know, you're in Costa del Sol. <laughs> you've got a little, oh, you know, it's nice. And, you you know, and, you, and you're in Gold Saucer. You've got that, you know, you know, it's just a really upbeat. No matter where you're going, it just sets the mood perfectly. And that's what I was saying about how, you know, if you've, if you're feeding your senses with the right music, um, you're, you're sending your eyes the right visuals, then you let your brain do the rest. You know, and I, I just thought that, it, had, it just had a really good soundtrack. Even the, the noises, the now I can remember the noises going through the menu system or the noise it made when you hit, like, load game and stuff like that there, you know, with the cloud. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, just the, the save, saving. And it, it, so it's, like, they're all iconic. Do you know what I mean? So the sound design was just fant- absolutely fantastic across the board, I think. Yeah, it's funny because with games like this, it's so tough to gauge that the first 10 years of my life as far as when things came out because the most groundbreaking shit was happening in video games and it's tough to decipher if nintendo did it this year or whatever but i got to imagine so much of this shit had never been done before when ff7 came out so like it probably set the course for games moving forward yeah because i mean most music was was done before like playstation like playstation came across and they had the capacity of like cds it was all like uh, midi uh, do you know what midi sounds are um so it's like 16 16 bit audio so you couldn't actually replicate like human voice really well or have enough storage. So this was like the first time that we could actually have sort of like full orchestra music and games and things like this as well. Oh, interesting. So, you know, you had that. I mean, I know only Final Fantasy VII was like the first because there was obviously other PlayStation games came out. But I knew the PlayStation was one of the first formats that was able to actually have enough capacity for this sort of audio fidelity. And, you know, Final Fantasy VII, you know, really made benefit of it well as we as we move into the last section of the game here it's the toughest one to sort of pin down but the legacy factor the it factor what makes this game sort of stand out amongst the rest i mean to this day it's square enix's biggest cash cow and their biggest success i mean we're still talking about it today why do you think this game in particular stands the test of time when we have seen lots of games like this like final fantasy 8 final fantasy 9 only had this to build off of and those games are not held in the same regard as Final Fantasy VII. So, what makes this one stand out? I mean, arguably, the, it's the one where... Uh, which one did you play first? You know, uh, if, uh, In Final Fantasies, I had played, I believe, four. was the only one I played before this. So, did you play seven first, and then eight, and then nine? Uh, I've never played eight still. But, yeah, I played seven and then nine. And I way prefer seven. Nine is just doesn't have the same impact at all. So most people, generally, it's I generally find most people's favorite is the one that they played the first. Um, so a lot of like so yeah, that makes sense. So people play ten and they go back and play seven or nine. They say ten. If they played nine and they played seven and then they say nine. So it's just a lot of people say seven. I think because seven was the first one. Now I also think that there are a lot of other people who think that nine and ten are better or wrong. But um, the reason it's seven is so f- like brilliant. I think for me was just the setting the steampunk i think was just 
it was just a lovely set and do you know what i mean it just had a and it was aesthetic. way before that aesthetic wasn't even a cliche at this point it was very nuanced and very cool and fresh yeah and that's what i mean and because of it was just it had that nice it just had that right level level of broodiness and that level of darkness and this is another thing which is i don't even think is ever touched upon because we had crts back then they were able to do a level of black that it hasn't been seen for like 15 years so dark games as such we ever we play dark games now they're never dark they're always gray so you'd never have that real sense of like i'm fucking appearing into a dark tunnel or whatever so it, it, it you know going back whenever playing them games on crt so to have that like it was a it was a dark game and i like dark games so it really had that really dark aesthetic the, the story was fantastic in terms of it, was, it broke the mold and killing off your main characters the just the level of depth that you know i'm finding out about stuff about it now and i'm, I'm an avid fan 20 years you know into the future um the characters were fantastic. We were barely even to cover. Like, there's so much we just can't cover. Just not, like Kate Sith as a character is so intriguing, or Dio oh, looking yeah. for the black materia the the entire game. There's all this shit going on that's like, this game is chalked full. Yeah, I mean that's the thing is like the whole thing of like you got Sid Highwind and things like this here in the background. You know he's the pilot. Um, you know you we briefly talked upon Yufe. Uh, red 13 a little bit you know and it's like his whole story about maybe you know how there was meant to be two other red 13s but then they caught him um and just mm -hmm. he's also know. the last one we see at the end of the game it's like 500 years after after everything had ended where uh, just to reiterate for those who haven't seen the end of this game basically like a giant comet think like the the moon from majora's mask and zelda is like literally coming to crush the world but uh, you use the holy materia that Aerith was able to conjure right before she died. And sort of like her spirit saves the whole world. And then, yeah, 500 years later, you see Red 13 with his two little babies. And everything's green and, and good. Yeah, it's nice. You know, it's it's a, it's a nice enough ending. You know, and I just wanted more of it. I just wanted to, like, let me out in that world and let me go and do stuff and things like that. There. And it was, you know, I, I think for me, really, the biggest... I, if anything i think the world was its biggest character and the world that you explored and i think that any, any of the other ones seven or eight nine whatever just have nothing what it was like to walk around midgar to feel that bustling of that city at that age was just fantastic it was just a lack yeah and it's funny because i never thought of this at the time but it's going back to what you said at the very beginning of the guy wanting to put a sense of loss and mourning in this is like maybe that's why at the end of the game we jump 500 years so it's like yeah, this experimental tiger thing is still alive, but all the characters we've just played through the game must be dead, and the events that you just saw are now ancient history, and it's sort of like, time moves on, you know? <laughs> yeah, and that's it, you know, and, um, and it's, I think that's the thing is, that, you know, I, when I was a kid, I always I used to hate all those fucking gay-ass messages, you know what I mean? Like, fucking, like, all right, let, let's, uh, you know, all these for the fun, and I'm, but then, when I actually get older, you realize that, you kind of subconsciously appreciate them and actually you enjoy that sort of message that it gives you and it sort of just adds a little bit more on and you don't realize at the time but how it actually affects you on a, on a grander scale to see that yeah like for all the things that have happened for all that you know just it's going back to simpler times it's just red 13 and it's kind of <laughs> yeah red 13 the weird science experiment well man uh, i had one more question here do you 
Do you think, because I've not played the remakes, I'd love if we could, I, I'm going to borrow it from you soon, and maybe we can do another episode just on that. Um, but do you think with the creation of these remakes and just expanding upon the original content, are they, are they going to ever make that original Final Fantasy game like obsolete, or is it going to live in these remake shadows now, or are they different enough that you can still go back and get something totally different from the original? I mean, compared to the, um, with the remake, I mean, I've, I've, I've played extensively the remake, I know you haven't, so I don't want to touch too much on that, it's, the, the the seven is still to this day is completely playable you know on a mobile phone with the resolution it is and there's a, a maco mod if you are going to play it there's a maco mod that doesn't like an ai upscaler for it uh and it still looks good it looks f- ridiculously good for like a, on a handheld phone and so i think yeah there, there's always um there's always room for it because you know put it on a mobile phone and, and people still play it and people still get addicted to it. i know that my mate dom about a year and a half ago, he wanted to know what it was, and he starts talking on his phone, and he got hooked. So to yeah, this day, people still will play that and still get hooked on it. It's you just have to play it on the right format. You know, playing on a big fifty-five inch screen, maybe not, but on like your phone that you can just like you've got a controller hooked up to it. Like yeah, there, there, there's total reasons for it. Um, I I think that until they do the the remake is just a different game, and it it strikes a different tone. And I don't think it is anywhere near as... It's a great game, fantastic game, but it's not on the same level as the original because of the technological limitations which then enforce such a a beautiful world that I, I just... If I could make one wish in my whole entire life would probably just to be to live at Midgar and just chill out. <laughs> Dude, then they Shinra would drop a fucking plate on your head and it's it's all over. <laughs> yeah, probably, you know what I mean? But like for that little bit of time, you know what I mean? Just to walk around, you know, just being able to have this big fuck off sword that's obviously way too big for myself. Like, you know, and they, like, you know, I'd have the wrist for it, you know what I mean? I'd have these wee girly wrists, but just a massive sword like, you know? <laughs> you could even visit the honey, whatever it's called, the honey trap. The, the honeybee in you know what i mean so yeah, yeah i could get yeah. get my legs waxed and stuff but yeah man uh, it's just such a i mean it's crazy because i know how much we just even even touched the whole thing that like you've got the other character of zach who is completely doppelganger and it's like this whole you find out towards the end of the game are you actually playing the person you think you are or is it someone else in this whole other bit of the story that even i can't really wrap my head fully head around you know what i mean so yeah, yeah i found it, that fascinating because like I can buy the whole the whole thing is like the cloud was meant to be just a grunt and this Zach was actually like the superstar guy uh, that Cloud envisioned himself as. But I was like, if this is true, then why doesn't Zach? Why is he never a character we see outside of Cloud's memories in these flashbacks? Yeah, I think it was it's um, because he's dead by the time that the game starts. So whenever we see. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> well, that's why. So, <laughs> but then, uh, yeah, I was no. I'm not gonna say because it's gonna say something about the remake. So, um, let's not. I'm not even gonna touch on base star. But man, that was fucking awesome. I really enjoyed it. You, you've literally, I, you know, just talking about one of my, if not my favorite thing of all time. Yeah, I love it. I feel like our momentum has brought us to an organic end here. Uh, so yeah, thanks for doing the podcast. I had a great time talking Final Fantasy VII. And uh, is there anything you want to plug before we get out of here? No man, it uh, uh fine. Just we're in Comedy Loft House. We're opening back up. I think our first one 
is May 26th in Preston. Um, obviously, how we look out on the page, we'll keep people posted and stuff. But yeah, we're absolutely really excited to get comedy back open, get the shows on the road again and stuff like that. So yeah, it's going to be a, a hot summer and uh, hopefully you're going to have some hot comedy. Yeah, it's sick. You and Adam Anwar, who was on the second episode of this, run some great shows out there. I'm happy to, excited to be on some of them. And for myself, it's at FunnyJordanD on Twitter, on Instagram, also at G-O-Y-L Podcast on Twitter. Trying to grow that thing a bit. So if you like what you heard, if you're liking any of this, give it a share. Tell your friend. Uh, we, we want a few people listening. I need mo- some more nerds giving me some feedback on these. So uh, until then, Matt, thanks once again. And uh, until next time. Alright, keep. Alright, keep. See you soon.